Hey, what's up? This is Madam Butterfly. Happy Sunday, and you're uh, you're tuned into Frequency Bay. Thank you so much for joining me. So um, today I am really excited because um, today I want to go over a lecture that I found really helpful for myself uh, personally. And this particular lecture is uh, how to recover from depression. Um, and before I get started, I, I want to say a few things. So basically, this particular lecture talks about depression, of course, like the, the, but um, the thing about depression is that it comes in a lot of different facets. So there's not one type of depression. Um, and because there's not one type of depression, there's many different ways to treat depression. Um, and there, there are many different options uh, to and routes to take in order to find a med- better medium as far as depression is concerned. And um, so basically, I just want to say that I want to acknowledge the fact that um, depression comes in a lot of different packages. And um, if you know the type of depression that you have personally, then that is probably the best place to start in regards to treating your depression. Um, And with that, I'll also say that um, I'm really excited to get into some information about psychology once again. Psychology is something that makes me very happy. I personally don't have a degree in psychology or anything like that. It is a practice that I plan on going to as far as like, you know, uh, long-term education is concerned. But as of right now, um, I'm really just doing this as, you know, uh, something that I love. Like I love um, self-development. I love self-care. I love, you know, um, conversations in this particular realm. Um, and I'm interested and really glad to take the time to share some information with the public. And with that being said, I guess we'll get right to it. Um, this lecture, hold on, let me get things started. Let's see here. So I am going to play a bit of this this lecture, and then I'm going to go over um, a over over a an article as well. So let's see here. It says so. This particular lecture is posted to YouTube by uh, Psychologica. Cyclopedia, something of the sort, dot org, um, and in the description it says leading depression expert and clinical psychologist Dr. Michael Yolk uh, draws on research and shares his insight from 40 years of working with those suffering from common mental health illnesses. Uh, Learn the simple skills that this researcher shows can help you or a loved one to recover. And can prevent depression from occurring. And the heartwarming and uplifting uh, speech of the Australian 
Australian Psychological Society. psychology to the public to me is the most important thing that we as psychologists can do. The volume of information is so great and the quality of information has improved so markedly over time that there's a lot to share and we have a relatively short time this evening but I hope to give you a lot of good perspective about things that uh, matter the most in learning to manage depression. So let me uh, say I will be speaking for roughly 45 minutes or so, and then I will open it up to questions. Let me start with a story and get you thinking about this topic. When I was a young psychologist back in 1829, um, my first job was working in a psychiatric facility, and I was the admissions person. It was my job to admit new patients to the unit. Now, this is a locked facility. People aren't getting locked up because they're doing well. They're not really doing very well at all. And so my job was to interview them, find out why they were there, what was going on in their lives, what the expectation was for their hospitalization, what medications they were on, what the treatment plan was, all those kinds of things. Now, I'm young, I'm inexperienced, and for me to have the opportunity to interview many hundreds of people in a relatively short period of time turned out to be pivotal in all the things I'm going to talk to you about tonight. I would interview people who had been through the worst experiences that you can imagine. People who had been raped, tortured, mutilated. People who had fled their homelands literally with the bullets whizzing past their head. People who lost their entire family in one fell swoop in a plane crash or a car crash, people who had suffered the worst adversities you could possibly imagine. And when I would interview these people, it was easy to appreciate why they were broken, why they were so despairing, why they had given up on life. That was, of course, an interesting lesson to say the least passion, the empathy was very easy. But what fascinated me clinically, that has every bit of relevance to what we're going to talk about tonight, is when I interviewed people who had been through these horrific experiences, people who probably should have been depressed, but they weren't. And I wanted to know why not. 
what is it about the way that these people are coping that somehow serves to insulate them against depression? So it gave rise to the four research questions that have guided my career now for more than 40 years. Think about your answers to these questions because we're going to talk about them. The first question was, are there skills that people have that serve to insulate them? Very interesting. When you ask people directly, gee, anybody who had been through your circumstances would be depressed, you're not, why not? And people would give me these very insightful answers like, I don't know, where they would say, well, I guess it's just luck of the draw, or I guess it's good genetics. But they couldn't really give me any insight into that. They're just living it. They're just being who they are, doing what they're doing. So as a young researcher interviewing people and asking a million questions, slight exaggeration, and you find out that they like murder mysteries and they like taking walks in the park and they like playing with their kids and grandkids and they like ice cream and they like all kinds of things, and there I am trying to figure out, so what is it? Well, we've answered that question now. It's the ice cream. Hmm. Uh, if, if only it were that simple. So starting to identify what patterns are present in the way this person thinks about things, in the way they define problems, in the way that they define their relationships, what are they doing in there? And what emerged from that was with great clarity were certain patterns of self-organization. Keep that phrase in mind, patterns of self-organization. So then the question became, okay, if I think I have a handle on what's going on with these folks, what we can learn from them, it leads to the second question. Can we say that these skills that these people have are in fact learnable? Are they teachable? Isn't this what the purpose of therapy is, is to help people acquire these skills that are not intuitive for them, that are intuitive for these other people? Then the third question became the salient research question. Can we prove scientifically, empirically, that when people are taught these particular skills, that it makes a difference? that it reduces their level of depression, reduces the frequency of depression, reduces their vulnerability to relapses, reduces the impact on the people around them. This is one of the things about depression. It doesn't just affect the individual sufferer. One of my recent books is called Depression is Contagious, and not in a viral sense, not in a bacterial sense, but in a social sense. What is it about depression that is so easily transmitted to kids of depressed parents? If you're the child of a depressed parent, your likelihood of suffering depression is three to six times greater than if you are the child of a non-depressed parent. Just having a depressed parent is a massive risk factor, not a small one, a big one. So can we prove that by people acquiring and developing skills that it really makes a difference. And then the fourth question has to do with prevention. 
Now, bear in mind, I'm asking these questions more than 40 years ago when we didn't have good antidepressant medications. We had medications that weren't particularly effective, and people didn't want to take them. They had annoying little side effects like death. And so all in the span of 40 years, all of those things have changed. We have better medications. We have far better psychotherapies, a far better insight into what depression is, who's vulnerable, and under what conditions. But the idea at that time of even thinking about depression in terms of prevention was sheer fantasy. We didn't have good treatment, much less good opportunities for prevention. So I will summarize my response to all four of these questions. Yes, 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 and yes. What we have learned is that there are certain vulnerabilities, risk factors. A risk factor is anything that increases the likelihood of somebody suffering a particular disease or condition. And at the time that I started studying depression, we knew of exactly two risk factors, gender and family history. We now know that there are scores of risk factors, factors that increase vulnerability to depression. And I'm going to talk about some of the key ones this evening. Now, part of what came out of that initial study was the recognition that it's not just what happens to you. You know, for the people who say, well, the reason I'm depressed is because here's what happened to me when I was a kid or the reason that I'm depressed is because I lost my job, or the reason I'm depressed is because this person broke up with me. That's only partially true at best. It's far less about what actually happens to you, and it's far more about how you interpret, how you give the significance to, what kind of meaning you attach to the events in your life. And part of what we've learned is that there's a phenomenon called attributional style, a pattern of how people reflexively, unconsciously, interpret the significance of events. And this is something that is imperative to appreciate for all of us, because this is where some of the strongest risk factors reside, as I'll get into in just a little while. But let's backtrack to the most basic of questions. If we ask the question, what is depression? Well, depression is technically considered a mood disorder, but it's far more than that. Depression's tentacles reach into every part of a person's life. It affects not just your mood, it affects your physiology, your physical health, and how depression serves as a risk factor for many different conditions, most notably cardiovascular disease. In fact, there are cardiologists around the world who are recommending screening for depression as the first screen for cardiovascular disease, but others as well. It reaches into your ability to think and make decisions, and it's one of the things I'm going to talk about a little bit later is the quality of people's decisions and how their way of making decisions actually unintentionally reinforces depression. It affects job performance and your ability to function in the work that you do. It affects concentration, how many work-related accidents that damage people and damage people's lives are caused by inattention caused by depression. 
It affects relationships. It's hard to be around people who are depressed. It ends up damaging relationships, and of course, all that leads to is more isolation and more depression. So I can go on and on about all the different tentacles of depression, but you should get the idea that this isn't just a bad mood. There are a lot of things that are very persistent, very enduring about the patterns that give rise to depression in the first place that affect quality of life over the span of a lifetime. So then if we come to the question, what causes depression? Is depression caused by, now look at this list. If you were to research every one of these factors, you would find that there is abundant evidence for all of them and more. And if you look at this list, you'll notice that some of these factors are, and if you look at the depth of these factors. So I just want to go over the list that he put up really quick. Um, so this is, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven different things that he is suggesting in this um, lecture that um, depression can be influenced by uh, genetics, a biochemical imbalance, um, systematic inflammation. Oh, wow. Uh, psychological stressors, cognitive, uh, cognitive dis distortions, uh, a lack of environmental and social rewards. Interesting. Uh, social, <laughs> social inequities. Absolutely. Uh, cultural, cultural family influences. Absolutely. Uh, mishandling key value, uh, key valuable uh, mishandling key vulnerable situations, uh, dietary issues, and a lack of physical exercise. Damn. I like this guy. <laughs> you would find that there is abundant evidence for all of them and more. And if you look at this list, you'll notice that some of these factors are biological factors. Some of these factors are psychological factors. Some of these factors are social factors. And the more that we have learned about depression, the more that we learn how important the social side of the equation really is. That so many of the risk factors for depression, when I talk about depressed parenting and why kids of depressed parents are at so much higher a risk, it isn't through genetics. It's through modeling. As a parent, you can't teach kids what you don't know. And so it becomes an interesting field of research. What is the relationship between family structure, family coping styles, family atmosphere, and depression? And to leave it in general for the moment, there are some very significant factors that operate in that arena. It's why I wrote the book, Depression is Contagious, because these factors now are being recognized across a variety of fields. So to, to summarize that point, how important it is to appreciate and have a multidimensional viewpoint. Yes, biology matters, but surprisingly, not as much as you would think. That when we look at what
what's termed genetic variance. How much do genes play a role in depression? Is there a depression gene? No. Are there genes that make people vulnerable to depression? Definitely. And so if we look at biochemistry, yes, it's a factor. If we look at disease processes, there are many diseases where depression is a predictable consequence. If we look at drugs, there are many drugs that have depression as a predictable side effect. Biology matters. But when we look at genetic variants, that figure is between 0.3 and 0.4. That represents a mild, moderate, at best, genetic influence. So when we look at the power of the psychological factors, individual history, individual problem-solving styles, individual coping styles, these are the kinds of things that are in the domain of individual psychology. Another one that I mentioned just a moment ago, attributional style, the person's habitual or reflexive way of attaching meaning to life events. And the, the social side of the equation. As we've learned from studies of depression's prevalence, a field called epidemiology, this has been particularly revealing. I don't know if you saw the, the big announcement last year from the World Health Organization. Well, 2004, the World Health Organization, which monitors health issues of all types around the world, including depression, but other things as well, cancer, AIDS, MS, you name it. In 2004, the World Health Organization declared depression the number four cause of human suffering and disability behind cancer, heart disease, and traffic accidents. They predicted in 2004 that by the year 2020, depression would rise to be number two. In fact, depression reached number two in late 2013. Last year, just around this time, depression was declared the number one cause of human suffering and disability. And the numbers are increasing. There is no demographic group where the numbers are going down. In every demographic group, the numbers are going up. When we look at the epidemiology, it's the 25 to 44-year-olds who represent the largest group of depression sufferers. But the fastest growing group is their children. And this is one of the things that I am deeply concerned about, that when you see a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old who's already suffering depression, shows the signs, has the symptoms, is dealing with it, that's a basis for concern. What's an even stronger basis for concern is what happens 10 years from now when this depressed adolescent becomes a parent. We now have three generation studies that show remarkably clearly that from one generation to the next, depression increases in prevalence, depression increases in severity. I'm worried especially about the youngest among us who are at a very elevated risk right now for all kinds of reasons. One of the points about the social side of depression, why is depression increasing so dramatically? Think about your response to that. Well, the societal structure has changed radically over time. 
And when we look at things like the influence of technology, that smartphone that you're carrying around represents one of the strongest risk factors there is for young people today who are, no other way to describe it, addicted to the technology. Survey after survey showing that if you ask somebody to stop checking their phone for two hours, they react really badly. It's so ingrained into their quality of life. And as a general principle, the more time you spend in front of a screen, whether it's a small one, whether it's a big one, the more likely you are to suffer depression. You've been hearing about the what people are calling the epidemic of loneliness. Paradoxically, in this terribly overcrowded world, people are dying of loneliness. And the fact that people are as disconnected as they are plays a significant role. So when I talk about what causes depression, the best answer I can give you is many, many things. And that's precisely why each person's pathway into depression is different. It's why whatever pathway this person's going to find out of depression is going to have to be unique to them. Is there a best treatment for depression? Absolutely not. Is there a best approach? Absolutely not. The best approach is the one that works for you. And that's an important thing because as a consumer, that as you approach the decision to seek help, to take advantage of the fact that there are experts who have been studying these things for a very long time and have learned a lot and know how to do treatment quite well, that your path is going to be different and unique. There is no standardized treatment. There's no standardized way of doing this. And so this is an important point. I'm talking now about your risk factors, yours, you as an individual. They're not the same as others. When I say each person has their own pathway in and it's going to have to develop their own pathway out, your task is learning what your vulnerabilities are, learning what your risk factors are. What is very troublesome for one person isn't the least bit troublesome for someone else. What one person avoids with every ounce of energy they have, somebody else walks into openly and happily. Everybody's different. And so when we look at that point, which is really nothing to sneeze at, we, we really have to appreciate that it's that level of individual attention, learning about yourself, that becomes one of the most important things that you can do. So when we look at the fact that currently the most common form of treatment, the most popular form of treatment, is the antidepressant medication. Now, antidepressant medications really came became popular in the late 1980s with the first release of Prozac, the first of the newer generation antidepressants. I'm not going to say a lot about antidepressants right now, you know, just a couple of general comments. What I will say definitively is medications are too heavily relied upon. Medications are viewed as somehow going to be the answer. And I can tell you, the more that we understand the social aspect of depression, the more confidently I can say to you, there will never be a drug that cures depression any more than there will be a drug that cures racism or poverty. Looking at it 
through the lens of biology is an exceptionally limited perspective. Why I made a point of showing you the slide that shows you the biological factors, psychological factors, social factors. Now, it's not that I am against antidepressants. You know, part of writing for Encyclopedia Britannica is I can't just say it because it's my opinion. Where's the evidence for it? Antidepressants can do two things reasonably well. They can help you manage the vegetative symptoms, things like sleep disturbance, appetite disturbance, and they can raise the floor on depression. Now, that will be true for roughly half the people who take medications. If you take medication alone, it's something to reconsider. Medications have the highest rate of relapse of any form of treatment. So even if you happen to be a fan of medication, and believe me, there are people who say to me all the time, that medication saved my life, I believe them. There's no reason to disbelieve them. But the larger point I'm making is it's not enough. It's not enough. And here's why it's not enough. No amount of medication is going to help you develop skills in managing stress. None. No amount of medication is going to help you develop a better attributional or explanatory style or help you build and maintain positive relationships with other people, or it's help you develop the kinds of cognitive skills that help you think critically about experience instead of just getting sucked in by your feelings. It's not going to help you develop problem-solving skills. It's not going to help you develop better decision-making strategies. It's not going to teach you how to build a support network with people. It's not going to help you come to terms with whatever crummy things have happened in your life. And it's certainly not going to help you build one of the most important things, one of the most important things in getting treatment is how to build a compelling future. You know, the past, whatever distresses, whatever traumas, whatever situations you've, fa you've faced, I get that. I listen to those experiences all the time, and they're tragic. But if we ask the question, who overcomes depression and who doesn't? The people who find themselves facing forward, who start thinking in terms of how do I want my life to be, do better than the people who keep focusing on the past, the unchangeable past. And that's really the key in this. Drugs aren't going to help you do that. So if we look at what these risk factors are that I'm talking about, when I said there are scores of risk factors, literally dozens and dozens of risk factors, things that singly and in combination can give rise to depression very easily. I want to highlight for you some of the key ones, some of the risk factors that have a greater impact than do others. And All right, so we're going to stop right there with that, and we're going to hop into an article uh, in regards to managing depression and anxiety during uh, specifically a, a pandemic. Um, I, I know that mental illness is at an all-time high right now, and that is one of the reasons that I decided to go ahead and um, focus my podcast primarily on genuine mental health and um, recovery and things of that nature. Um, 
And so with that being said, uh, that being said, I will go ahead and start this next section, um, that I can, from what it looks like, just play. Taking it sweet time. So this article is by Kathy Caparno. And she is a writer for Forbes that covers executive, career executive and personal growth leadership and women's issues, which is really awesome. How to manage depression and anxiety in frightening times. How to manage depression and anxiety in frightening times. How to. By Kathy Caprino. Part of the series, Accessing the Most Powerful You. In crisis times like these, depression and anxiety often rise as people try to come to terms with situations that make them feel vulnerable, out of control and unprepared. Many people with or without anxiety disorders are feeling more anxious now.
As a former marriage and family therapist working with clients experiencing depression, anxiety, and other disorders, I've seen firsthand how our anxieties and insecurities can escalate the more we feel helpless and realize that many things we once believed about our lives are no longer valid or true. To learn more about how we can manage depression and anxiety in these uncertain times, I caught up with mental health expert Dr. Gregory Jantz this week on my podcast, Finding Brave, for his insights and suggestions. Dr. Gregory Jantz is a best-selling author of over 40 books and the founder of The Center, a place of hope, voted a top 10 facility for the treatment of depression in the United States. Dr. Jantz pioneered whole-person care and is a world-renowned expert on eating disorders, depression, anxiety, technology addiction, and abuse. He is a leading voice and innovator in mental health, utilizing a variety of therapies including nutrition, sleep therapy, spiritual counseling, and advanced GBT techniques. His latest book, Healing Depression for Life, the personalized approach that offers new hope for lasting relief, is on bookshelves now. Below. Dr. Jantz shares his insights and strategies for helping us manage depression, anxiety, and mounting fears during this current crisis and beyond. Kathy Caprino, in these rapidly evolving times, what are you seeing as the top symptoms people are experiencing, in terms of their mental health? Dr. Gregory Jantz, during times of uncertainty we see an increase in worry, fear, and anxiety. Symptoms manifest in the physical, psychological, and emotional being. People are experiencing trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, difficulty concentrating, irrational obsessions with worst-case scenarios, uncontrollable crying, fatigue, and physical symptoms of anxiety like headaches, nausea, and even panic attacks in extreme situations. Here are some tips for whole-person care that have been shown to be effective. Invest in all three areas of your well-being your mind, body and spirit to maintain your strength. For your mind, surround yourself with positive, supporting people. Practice positive self-talk and remind yourself you have control over your actions and thoughts. If you need additional support, speak with your counselor or therapist. For your body, commit to daily fitness, even if it is just a brisk 20-minute walk. Sweat a little bit and get your blood flowing. Eat a consistent, healthy diet that includes leafy greens, omegas, lean protein, vegetables, and is low in sugars. Avoid alcohol. Supplement with a good probiotic. Be disciplined to create a restful sleep environment where you can get at least 7 of of uninterrupted sleep nightly. Do not eat within 2 hours of going to bed, and do not watch television, especially stress-inducing programming, within 2 hours of going to bed. Ensure your bedroom is dark, quiet, and cool for optimum sleeping. Invest in a quality mattress and a quality pillow. They can make a world of difference. For your soul, be purposeful in your thoughts and actions, and reflect on and commit to your core values daily. Be compassionate and help others who are in need. Caprino. Depression, anxiety and substance use often rise in crisis situations like these, and for many, panic is setting in. What steps can people take today, to help them rein in their fears? Jance. The World Health Organization notes that depression is the leading cause of disability in the world affecting more than 264 million people. In the U.S., the American Association of Depression and Anxiety notes anxiety is the number one mental health disorder, 
affecting over 40 million almost one in five adults. And the numbers are increasing. Columbia University noted that depression rates are rising at accelerating rates since 2005, especially among adolescents. The good news is that both depression and anxiety are treatable. A whole personal approach to care mind, body, and soul has proven to produce lasting results. Dialectical-based treatment, DBT, is regarded as a very effective tool to empower individuals with the tools and techniques they can use every day to manage their depression and anxiety. Here are some tips to help address fear and anxiety. Manage your stimulation. Turn off the television and put down the mobile device for extended periods of time. Increase a focus on positivity. Invest in positive self-talk and in conversations with friends and family who are also positive and supportive. Remind yourself that you can do the things required to create a healthier, safer environment. Don't neglect your body. Keep your body strong emotionally and physically by avoiding stressful conversations or news reports, and by eating well, exercising, and getting good sleep. Caprino. What are the most difficult anxieties and fears to navigate through regarding the pandemic? And what are the best three strategies to navigate through and effectively address these fears? Jance. A pandemic like this one can exacerbate existing mental health challenges around stress and anxiety. Persistent, irrational thoughts are a real concern, as they lead to unhealthy outcomes like anger, sadness, paralyzing fear, a lack of sleep, and even physical debilitation. Three key strategies can help. 1. Acknowledge your challenge and address it. Use small steps to restore calm and strength. Practice positive self-talk and proactive actions like creating healthy meals and maintaining fitness. 2. Unplug. Limit your screen time to minimize distressing news. Keep up healthy non-digital activities, walk the dog, finish a project, read a book. 3. Include family and friends in a positive, online support group. Encourage others, surround yourself, however you can, using online tools, with those who are positive and who will support you. Caprino, what about uncertainty? When so much of what we've counted on and taken for granted in our lives, society and in our world is shifting, what do we hold on to and focus on? Jance, remember that tough times will pass. That doesn't mean they are not challenging, but there are positive things we each can do to protect ourselves and support others. Heed the advice of medical professionals and practice social distancing, use good hygiene, eat well and maintain fitness. These are proactive things we all can do. Know that there are others who are here to help you. If you are struggling, speak with a mental health counselor. Treatment programs are available. Connect with a strong support network. Difficult times can amplify all potentials within our personality and the foundation of who we are. Demonstrate compassion, empathy, joy and commitment to help others during these times. You can be a strong example of strength and steadiness during these times that can inspire others. Caprino, can you talk about priorities right now? How to set them and achieve a sense of balance and security by attending to these priorities? What are some priorities we can hang on to? Jance. Here are some helpful priorities to focus on. Keep your physical body healthy. Avoid alcohol and stay well hydrated. Maintain a healthy diet and support your immune health. Did you know 70% of your immune system resides in your gut? Take a daily probiotic to support your immune health and infuse greens into your daily diet. Get good rest. Your body recovers and heals while you sleep. Avoid unnecessary contact with others. Hunker down and embrace the opportunity to connect with family in your home. Challenge yourself to start a meaningful project. 
support your mental health. The worry and anxiety you may be feeling is legitimate. These are uncertain times. For many of us, finances, employment, elderly family members, and the fear of sickness can combine to create significant stress in our lives. If you need support to manage these challenges, ask for it. Avoid negativity and reinforce positivity and hope. So many can become consumed by irrational worry and fear. Break out of that mindset and think positively, objectively and clearly. There is much we can do to help out and encourage others. Overall, focus on what you can do and put your best efforts forward to maintain a strong mind, body and soul. Remind yourself that your surroundings are within your control, along with the quality of food and exercise you get. Do your best to be positive, comforting and helpful to others which will, in turn, help you become stronger and more resilient to face the challenges of today. To learn about types of treatment for anxiety and depression, visit the center, A Place of Hope. If you'd like career and leadership growth support, visit Kathy Caprino's Career Breakthrough Programs in Speaking, and tune into her podcast Finding Brave. How to Manage Depression and Anxiety in Frightening Times by Kathy So that's all I got for this this episode of Frequency Bay. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, There's a lot of information packed in there. Um, Definitely some good notes. uh, Or a good opportunity to take notes. Um, Very excited about the next episode that I'll be doing probably either today or tomorrow uh, in regards to this. But... um, yeah, thank you so much for listening, and uh, that'll be it for me, Madam, Butterf- Madam Butterfly out.